Shalom and Rosh Chodesh Sameach to everybody. How is everyone doing? I hope you're doing well. I just want to introduce a new Parsha podcast series that with the help of Hashem, myself and our Jewish Lapid Neri Arok, aka Mr. Ariel, will be joining me on this venture as we take on the Egedit to the Lapid in Rome. So if that sounds weird to you, then yeah, that's the technical way to say it, but the letter to the Romans. Because, you know, there was a Lapid community in Rome in the first century. And uh, since we're in Italy, I just want to say ciao to everybody because that's how you say hello in Italian. So Rome, Italy is where we going to be at as we finish out the Parshot in the Sefer of Shemot. So this week is Parsha Bo and Bo is absolutely ridiculous. So if you are not tuning in to the Aliyah a day by Rabbi Griffin, you're missing out on some delicious meals. And also, a shameless plug, the Haftarah Get You Some with myself and Chassis, a.k.a. Natan. Uh, we are definitely bringing out some elucidations on the Parsha, as well as the Haftarah portion of each week. And between the Aliyah Day and the Haftarah Get You Some, you will definitely be getting some Brit Hadashah Get You Some because everything we talk about with Messiah Yeshua as well as some of the things that the apostles wrote, uh, they all come out in commentary. So, Baruch Hashem. So, since everything is all covered, I just wanted to see what else we could get into since we have such illumination and Jewish literature that's absolutely insane and there's always stuff left on the quote-unquote cutting room floor, uh, as we would say in our production world. But... um, you know, it's like, how come we don't ever deal with the letters? How come we don't ever talk about Corinthians? And how come we don't talk about Romans and like all this kind of stuff? And truth be told, we do. We just kind of sneak them in there. And so it's just like after we sneak by like Shinobi, you're just like, wait, what just happened? And we're like, yeah, we just quoted Romans. Get you some. But with all that being said, um, myself and Nariya Roke, with the help of Hashem, will be bringing out some of the oral Torah translation uh, and correlation of sep- sections from Rome, uh, the letter to Romans, and we will be lining that back up with the Torah portion and with uh, just different things we find throughout Talmud, Midrash, so on and so forth. So it's important to know that these are all Jewish writings, and um, it's not something that you want to really base your whole faith around which is why it's important for us to walk through Torah and not really be walking through letters. Um, And obviously we see the dichotomy that is cast because what happens in a church and what happens in a synagogue worlds apart, right? You know, and you got to look at what is the core writing? What is the core material that is being studied in each of those establishments? Okay. So, need not further elucidate on that. So I just wanted to share um, just kind of a preface and then get into the preface of Romans because uh, there's a lot to talk about. So the first thing to talk about is when we get into the Brit Hadashah. Brit Hadashah is not a 
it's not it's not what we think it means. So we think Brit Hadashah in our minds are like, oh yeah, the New Testament. It's like, well, okay, if you're gonna go there, you need to understand the New Testament is actually Brit Hadashah, correct, but it actually means something completely different than the set of writings from Matthew to Revelation. Because if you go back to where Brit Hadashah is used technically in the Tanakh, it is used in Yermiyahu, which is Jeremiah chapter 31. And it says that I will be cutting a Brit Hadashah with the house of Yehuda and Israel. So that already kind of cuts out the whole idea of a church and Catholicism and Rome and all sorts of historical things that have been happening quote unquote, through this New Testament. So when you really get back to Jewish literature on Brit HaDashah, you see actually it's just a renewal of the covenant that Hashem founded with the nation of Israel when he took us out of Mitzrayim. Notice I say we, because for any of us who are following Hashem, who believe in the Messiah of Israel, we are called B'nai Yisrael because we're sons of Abraham. So, with all that being said, understanding Brit Hadashah is something different, and so uh, it's really cool that through Lapid we're actually seeing that when we get into the gospel accounts, they're called the Basora, and so we're going through, like Matthew, we're going through Mark and Luke and Yochanan and things like that, so we call those the Basora accounts, and then we have Acts, then we have different letters, so that's why I'm calling this series the Letter to the Romans, specifically to the community of Lapidim in Rome, because if you go through Acts, you actually see that there are different um, provinces throughout the whole entire world that the Talmudim are going to and other people that are affiliated with the Talmudim they're going to. So, and again, everything is Judaism. Everything is predicated off of Jewish teaching and concepts. So, when we see what is going on in the letter to the Romans, where's the Jewishness in there? And why would Jewishness be considered separate from believing in Messiah? And how is it that, you know, the church can teach one way and have all these different commentaries on Romans, but yet we look around and there's no Jewish commentary on Romans. And it's like, okay, we need to talk about that. So, the next thing I want to bring up is that the word for letter is actually egedit. It is actually a Hebrew word. And, you know, the more I look into just the concepts of what the Talmudim of Mashiach actually did and correlate that to what we have in the letters and in the Basora, it's just like, that is Judaism. Because Judaism has egerot, which is egedit in the plural form. And so it's just kind of like, oh, so this is not new. So Shaul isn't doing anything new. Kepha's not doing anything new. Neither is Yaakov. Neither is Yehuda, which is Jude. You know, and so Egedit, Tanya, Egedit, Tanya. So if you study the Tanya, that's called an Egedit. And so that's considered a very holy grail writing in Judaism. And it's just kind of like, okay, so the letters have been called books by followers of the Messiah Yeshua. And it's just like, so we're calling a letter a book. And yet it's just like we're breaking it down into chapters and verses when it's meant to be read as a whole complete document. You know, if your grandmother writes you a letter, you don't chapterize it and you don't 
make it into verses and all this kind of stuff. And so here we have Talmudim and different apostles, you know, writing letters. And it's just like, yeah, there are books now and then they're holy word of God. And this is what we base our faith by so much so that we can leave behind the principles and concepts of Torah. And it's just like, that's not good. So with all that being said, Egedet is a very Hebrew Jewish thing. And uh, another big heavy hitter of the Egedot is Ramban with Anun. He also uh, wrote an Egedet. And so you can actually just type in Egedet, which is if you transliterate it, it is I-G-G-E-R-E-T or spelled with one G sometimes. The thing with transliteration, you can spell it a hundred different ways. So <laughs> you're guaranteed to hit if you put, you know, any of that in the search bar. But you'll see what pops up immediately is Ramban and Tanya. And so that's just the tip of the iceberg. There are so many Igarot in Jewish literature. So Again, when we're looking at the Egedet to Rome over here in Italy, nothing new. Next thing about what's been commonly called the Brit Hadashah or the New Testament, depending on how much, you know, uh, influence or whatever establishment you're learning from, is that there were many canonizations of it. Uh, and it was all based off of time period. Now, canonization, because, uh, you know, I like the word canon since it makes me think of rockets and ballistics and all kinds of stuff like that. But canon is actually a literature term for a compilation of writings and you put it together and it's like, here, here's your canon. And it's like, OK, so basically when you take the Basora and you take Acts and you take letters and you take Revelation, you put them together and you hand that out as a codified writing that's called a canon a canon the canon of the brit hadashah there's one that happened in the second century there's one that happened in the fourth century there's one that happened like after 1000 a.d and then another time in the 1400s another time in the 1600s probably many more other than that i mean i'm really just kind of shotgunning these time frames for you just to let you know that there are various canonizations of the brit hadashah writings so um and most of them have a common denominator is that it is not anything from judaism as far as how did it become to be just these specific letters just these specific gospels and things like that. It is not Jewish as far as the origin of organizing it. And that's not taking a shot at the people who organized it, but to give us a little bit more factual understanding of why are there so many, how come it's so many times that it's being edited and revised and done over and over again? How come there isn't an original translation for most things? How come it's primarily in Greek? Because if you think about the fact that there's a Hebrew holiday that is a fast day and it's called the 10th of Tevet. And this is when we um, we observe the morning that the Torah was translated into Greek. And so you got kind of that sore wound going on. And it's just like, yes, yeah, so we're going to create a whole new canon and, you know, put it together with the Tanakh and say, this is the thing. And, oh, it just so happens we're going to make it in Greek. And 
you know, the Torah is already in Greek, so we'll just attach it to that. So it's just kind of adding insult to injury, you would think, in, ge in general speaking. But that's all good, because remember, Hashem spoke the Torah in 70 languages. So every nation of the world is meant to know the Torah, which means the Torah is for everybody. Okay, that's a technical word, everybody. Now, where else was I going with this? The other common denominator is it says, this is from the Encyclopedia Britannica. That's where I went for this. The single most decisive factor in the process of canonization was the influence of Marcion, who flourished in CE 140. Okay, so we're looking at over 100 years after Messiah walked the earth, that after all of the Talmudim of Mashiach, and after the death of Shaul, okay, it's important not to confuse Shaul as a Talmud of Messiah. He was an apostle, but he wasn't a Talmud. So it's very important. So now we're moving that much ahead in time. And not to mention the Britannica brings out that there is uh, lots of heresy going on. There's lots of persecution going on. There's lots of losing of the oral traditions and breakdown in uh, the documents that were written. So it's just kind of like we're going through this kind of decay of uh, everything that's been codified and, and handed out. So when we really look at how do you really engage and study the Igerot and the Basora and Acts and things like that, we have to do it from a foundation of Torah because that's the only cohesive foundation that we have. And so that's why the importance of what Neri Arok and I are going to be doing with the help of Hashem is using the sources to make sure that we have everything appropriately lined out and have a good understanding of these little chunks of beautiful commentary that's actually brought out by Lapides just like us, you know, so I definitely uh, will say is at least in my honest opinion that Shaul is definitely a Lapide and uh, Kepha's obviously a Lapide, you know, because Yeshua told him he was. And then obviously Yochanan and Yaakov, Yaakov was definitely the Lapide because he was the head of the Lapidim of the first century. So there's all that. So when you really look at Shaul he is uh, subjugated to Kepha, as well as subjugated even more so to Yaakov. So he's not the number one be-all, you know, kind of thing. And if you really want to look at it, at least in our Jewish concept of understanding commentaries, Shaul would be the same as a Rashi, you know, except Rashi is considered Peshat, like, you know, basic simple level of study and understanding. But the prolificness of Rashi and the prolificness of Shaul as far as what actual letters of his we have, because truth be told, we do not have all of Shaul's letters. So if you ever hear anybody tell you that, be like, thank you so much for playing, but please join us next time for another chance on this episode of we do not have all of Shaul's letters. We have some. He wrote many letters to Corinth and we only have two for just one simple example. And just end it there. But anyway, uh, but Rashi is like a cornerstone almost when it comes to engaging in the Torah study. That's why if you get a Humash, most commentary is going to come from Rashi. And that's why when we're looking at the the letters 
Shaul has lots of letters that we have commentary on. And so it's just like, oh, yeah, well, obviously he was important because we have most of his stuff. And it's like, that's not quite how it happened. But if you really want to look at it from that picture, that's what it is. But we know that Kepha tells us specifically in his letters, which was written to everybody, not specific people like Shaul's were, that Shaul's writings are hard to understand. It's kind of like saying, you know, this uh, rocket scientist over here is saying that we need to make sure that if we're going to check out this other guy, that we need to know a little bit more than normal uh, understanding and normal education. We probably need to go to college a little bit and all this kind of stuff, because if you're going to engage with anything that's written by this guy, you're going to be challenged. And so if it's like if a rocket scientist is giving you this kind of advice, you might want to take it because he's a rocket scientist. Uh, for what that's worth, that probably didn't make any sense, but it did in my head, and Bezrat Hashem would make sense, and if not, may the Ruach HaKodesh cause it to make sense. Anyway, so the next thing I want to bring up is that um, we have this idea that there are many Jewish believers in the Messiah that wrote letters, that did drashes, that traveled around to different places in the world in the first century, literal, literal eyewitnesses to Messiah Yeshua's teachings and uh, his ministry and, um, you know, any kind of miracles or anything that they saw. Like they went around and they taught and those things are out there somewhere in the cosmos. But um, they were all not considered as far as being canon writings. Some things that were presented as a possibility, you know, like Clement and um, there's another guy named Papias and obviously some of these people are anti-semitic so that kind of causes issues and then um you know we got barnabas we got uh obviously andrew and bartholomew those guys talked a lot and matthias uh, the new guy who got brought in after uh yehuda iscariot decided to sell yeshua like the brothers that sold yosef after that happened so anyway there's stuff like that out there and we don't have it as far as like what we know and uh that's not again that's not a shot at anything we don't need to be like where are these where are these sources it's just kind of like if you get with jewish literature you got plenty of sources but since we have this thing called the bible it's like okay so there's also sources in there too so let's just be thankful for what we got and the more oral torah that we learn the more these other writings that we do have make complete and absolute sense so and then the last thing i want to do is give an overview on the letter to the romans so what is going on why is this like a thing so obviously the author of the letter is shaul so that's cool because some of his letters are disputed uh, so it's just kind of like we don't know if he wrote this or if it was his talmud or somebody wrote in his name which also they said that uh, in the encyclopedia, they bring up historically that there was a lot of that going on. Lots of writers wrote anonymously and pseudonymously. So I did not know pseudonymously was a word, but it is. So anyway, uh, so that would be like me just kind of taking Rabbi Griffin's uh, commentaries and just writing it, not in my name or in his name, and just putting it out there. 
And it's just kind of like, okay, that's anonymous. And it's got crazy sources in there, and they're amazing. And then if I wrote pseudonymously, you know, I would say this is in the name of Rabbi Griffin, and I'm submitting this, you know, and it's just like, oh, this is a commentary by Rabbi Griffin, da 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 da, but he didn't write it. It's just kind of like, oh, that's awkward. Kind of cool, but awkward. So anyway, there's a lot of that going on. So you have a swirl of circumstances and things going on. And so Shaul is not face to face with these Lapidim over here in Rome. So he's corresponding with them to follow up and answer questions. And man, you know, Rabbi Griffin brought it down even in today's Aliyah that you know, we have Lapidim now in Virginia and Oklahoma and Houston and New York. And like they're just popping up like crazy. So, you know, Brugashem. So as that is happening, we're having to correspond with these people via them traveling to us and we traveling to them and back and forth and vice versa. So that's what was going on with these letters and specifically with Acts. Acts is the foundation. I definitely would have loved to start a series in Acts, but apparently if I start with Romans, that'll be really, really good to kind of backtrack and work my way in spiderweb stuff, even though I'm not Spider-Man. But that's cool. I made his suit. Just kidding. Tongue in cheek. All right. Anyway, so what's going on with this letter, this Egedit? First of all, I have what's called the Haley's Handbook. It definitely is a Christian commentary, so I will put that out there. But it's very scholarly, and um, obviously it has different shades because it makes everything seem like church. Everything is Christian. Everything is Messiah's Greek name, da-da-da-da-da. But facts are facts. So check this out. This is what it says. Romans. In bold writing, it says the nature of, and I'm going to say Mashiach, the nature of Mashiach's work and justification by faith, which is Amuna. That's it. That's the introduction. Like that's the overall get you some. If you're going to read this letter, this is what you're going to be focused on. So step back for one second before reading verse one and for anything else that I say to you. If anybody comes to you quoting Romans, telling you not to follow Torah, back up and politely say, oh, I know what you're talking about, because that whole writing is about the nature of Messiah's work and justification by faith. It, it doesn't mean that we don't follow Torah. Like Shaul was not going to write a letter and tell us, yeah, if you want to do anything Jewish, don't. If you want to read the oral Torah, don't. Like, that's not what this letter is about. This letter is letting us know that as we get into Judaism, as we convert, as we get into observance, that the nature of Messiah's work and our justification through our imuna is very, very important. So don't get lost in the wonderful, uh, beautiful world that Torah is. Make sure that you have a foundation in the Messiah and make sure that you know beyond a shadow shadow of a doubt is not really a thing, but beyond a reasonable doubt that you are justified through your amuna. You can't do enough mitzvot to really bring you justification and right standing with Hashem. If you're going to do that, that's what this letter is going to teach you about. So the confusion comes in because it's like, yeah, so you don't have to do mitzvot to be right with Hashem. It's like, that is true. 
But understand this, when Hashem made B'nai Yisrael right with him, i.e. they were blood on the doorposts, they were circumcised, they were partaking of the flesh and the blood of the lamb, and then he brought them out of confinement and slavery and exile, mikvahed them, he brought them to a mountain so that they can complete the marriage ceremony and become one. So Hashem is going to marry his people with him. And it's just like, so after that point, let's look at a refined life. Let's look at sanctification, which happens after justification, by the way, which is also talked about in this letter. And it's just like, so you're looking at the idea that mitzvot come after your renewal, your redemption, you're being made right with Hashem. So now that you are made right with Hashem, how are you going to live with him? What is it like to walk with Hashem? How can two walk on the same path unless they agree? So if you're telling Hashem, I don't need to do your mitzvot, I'm all right with you. He's like, cool, but I'm walking this way. And if you want to be right with me, then you're going to be left without me if you're not going to do what I'm doing. Crazy analogy. I just wanted to do a pun. So that was a stretch. Anyway, walk with Hashem. You have to be in agreement with him. He gave us the Torah and that's what he's doing. So if we're not doing that, then we're not with him. And, uh, you know, it's just kind of like, all right. So if you're going to be members of the same household, you have household rules, right? If you don't follow those household rules, life is not going to be awesome. If you do, life is kind of awesome with some challenges. And then it's like extra awesome when you overcome those challenges. So there's that. So um, I love that. I mean, that's right there. The next thing it says is that the date and the occasion of this egedit, because it uses the word epistle, which is also another way to say letter is epistle. Literally, you can say the epistle of Tanya says or the epistle of Ramban says. So if you really want to sound cool, you can do that. It says in the spring. And it's so cool because this Torah portion, Parsha Bo, is in the spring. You know, Pesach happens in the first month of the spring, which is Aviv, uh, the original biblical word for it, which is commonly known now as Nisan, which is the first month, which we also find in this week's Torah portion. So not to get into the Torah portion, but we got into it. And uh, there you go. So this letter was written around the time that the Pesach season would be and all that kind of stuff. But funny it says that parentheses, perhaps in the time of winter. So now we move from like a Pesach time frame to like a Hanukkah time frame. So what's the correlation between Pesach and Hanukkah? Seven days. Hanukkah has eight. I'm aware. But did you know Pesach has eight? Because you include the 14th of Nisan. Because on the Erev of the 14th of Nisan, which is coming out of the 13th and going into the 14th, you are searching for the last little pieces of hamets in your house. You're using torches. You're going through your house. Well, you probably don't want to use torches because the, the mother of the house might get upset and drop kick you to the face in love and then give you a bandage and kiss your boo-boo. And yeah, but anyway, but she will hurt you. So don't put torches in the house. But anyway, you go look for the hamets. And wouldn't you know, there were people with torches looking for quote-unquote, Hamets in the Garden of Gethsemane while Yeshua was praying with his Talmudim after they had their Seder on Erev 14th of Nisan. So 
we even see that the Basora account even records the fact that what we normally do to celebrate the Passover festival, that's what happened when Messiah was praying in the garden and his sweat was literally drops of blood. People came at him with torches and clubs and they were like searching for him and then they found him. And it's just like, wow. So that's interesting. So Messiah Yeshua is seen as a piece of Hamid's. And it's just like, yeah, because, you know, this one time Jewish writing tells us that Hametz is likened to the Yetzahara, which is likened to sin. And that's all the the thing about Hametz is it's, it's like basically a manifestation of sin. And you have to remove that in order to partake of Pesach. So Messiah Yeshua becoming sin, you know, because he who knew no sin became sin. And it's just kind of like, wow. So he was searched out like that and he was removed before we partook of the Pesach. But then he came back and he was just like, hey, guys, I took care of the sin problem. Uh, what y'all doing? It's just like, um, is this real? Is this happening? He's just like, guys, I told you I done told you I was going to be handed over. I was going to die and I was going to come back and it was going to be fine. It's actually going to be better than fine. Here, look at my hands, look at my feet. Here's my side. You know, can I have something to eat? You know, it's I'm not a ghost, okay? So anyway, there's all that. So yeah, anyway, that's the era of 14th of Nisan. And then literally from the 14th of Nisan into the 15th of Nisan, that's when you do your Seder. So if you really look at it, the 14th of Nisan is actually the first day of Pesach or the Passover festival. And it's just kind of like now that turns a seven day festival into technically eight days. That's just kind of a extra little thing. But yes, Hashem did give us the seven day festival. And Hanukkah is an eight day festival because of the miracle and the salvation that Hashem wrought for his people when the Greeks, which is so crazy because it's like, yeah, the Torah was translated into Greek and we're now Greek Greekanizing all the letters of the Talmudim. And it's just like, well... There was Hanukkah this one time that said, you know, Greek needs to be out and Judaism needs to be in. So there's that. But anyway, so that's there. They're saying that's the date or the occasion of this epistle. And it's around the time frame of A.D. 57, which is important because the temple was still in existence. Messiah was around A.D you know, 30, 33, so somewhere in the 30s to the 40s. So now you're looking at, you know, 30 to about 50, that's 20 years. So if you bump that over about seven years, so you're looking at 20 to 30 years later after Messiah Yeshua's ministry on the earth. And it's just kind of like, that's when this letter came out. So what about all the people who were keeping Torah already who converted to faith in Messiah Yeshua, which was still Torah, but on a hundred and fifty. Because remember what happened at Mount Sinai? That's what happens when you convert to Torah and Yeshua. You get back to what we lost at Sinai, which is why it's important to know Jewish sources. So then you got people who are in that condition from the time of Messiah Yeshua until this letter comes out. It sounds like they were doing just fine without the letter to the Romans. That doesn't mean we shouldn't study Romans or that Romans is now has no value. So why are we even looking at it? It's just like, well, understand the place of it. It's just coming in alongside of everything we already know and all of our foundation. Now we just have some beautiful commentary to lay with it. You know, so anyway, A.D. 57, 
And it says, and where was Shaul? He was in Corinth. He was in Corinth. So he was with another congrega congregation of Lapidim and a place called Corinth, which if you look at Corinth, let me see here. Beautiful thing about this handbook is it has maps. So that's why I like this, uh, this source, because it does a good job of putting in maps. And if you notice in the section of the letters in the Brit Hadashah, Romans and Corinthians are right next to each other. Um, are we going to tell me where Corinth is? Because I feel like it's like greasy, like in Greece area, not greasy, like greasy Corinthians. But anyway, it says it's Mediterranean and this does look like Greece. It's like, man, how are you going to do a commentary on Rome and not know where Corinthians is? Okay, Corinth is definitely in Greece. Baruch Hashem. There's a map here. Thessalonica is also at the very, very top of Greece and to the east side. So the east side drama over there in Thessalonica. So the letter to the Thessalonians, the Lapidim over there, they're next to Greece. And then you got Philippi. So the, you get it to the Philippians. Uh, they're also next to Thessalonica. So it's just like this whole cove in the Aegean Sea area that's getting all lapeded up. <clears throat> so it's important to know Shaul was in Greece while he's writing to Romans. So it's just like, all right, so you're in, uh, you're in Greece and you're writing to Italy. That's cool. Then it says that um, he was at the end of his third Shliok journey. So his third sent out journey. And then it says he was about to leave for Yerushalayim with the offering of money for the poor saints there. So that's cool because this money offering here is like some tzedakah. So he's going to Yerushalayim with the tzedakah from the poor saints which are Lapidim, who are believers. So, you know, a bunch of Jewish people over here. And he says, so he's taking money there. He's going to Jerusalem. So he's making Aliyah for real. Then it says a woman named Phoebe. Got to love Phoebe, right? Says a woman named Phoebe of Sin Cray Cray. Now, it doesn't say Sin Cray Cray. I don't know how to pronounce this word. It's really weird. Sin Cray? Sin Cray? Sin Cray? Let's go with Sin Cray. Sincre for 500, a suburb of Corinth. And he would, or it says, so this woman, Phoebe, she was from there and she was going to Rome. And Shaul made use of this opportunity to send the letter with her. All right, so Phoebe's now dispatched with a very, very G14 classified document to go talk to some Lapides in Rome. So that's pretty cool. He's just like, hey, I just so happen to have a letter on the place you're going. Can you take this? And holla at my peoples. And then it says there was no postal service in the Roman Empire. That's so funny. Because <laughs> Rome, actually, if you really look at the uh, kingdoms and civilizations, historically, uh, America and Rome are pretty, pretty close as far as like dominance and uh, influence. And um, we even share the same emblem, the eagle, for crying out loud. And then, you know, it's talking like Roman... Rome existed for like this amount of time. America's existed for this amount of time. So it's kind of like the same on that. 
So, I mean, there's a lot of correlations there. So it's really cool to start out uh, elucidating with the Egeret to Rome because it's like, if we really took any of the letters that are in the Brit Hadashah, like Rome would probably be the closest one to our society over here in America. Uh, so for what that's worth, it's like we're not reading anybody else's mail when it comes to that, which is not a uh, violation. But anyway, so personal letters had to be carried by friends or travelers. So this is interesting because now we're basing not we, but the common notion for basing your faith and your theology and your responses about the words of Messiah, the word of God, you're going to base it off of documents that were circulated by couriers. So you're trusting your faith to come from a person who delivered this message. And it's just like, what's possible opportunities are there for this person to lose that? So it's just kind of like, well, you would have known the word of God, but it didn't show up because it rained over here. You would have known the word of God because it flooded. You would have known the word of God, but I accidentally got polio. And it's just like, hmm, that's lame. But anyway, um, so all that stuff could happen. So this is why it's important. The Torah, though, was like given. And it's like amazing. It was no postal service directly from Hashem to his people. Then it says, what is the purpose? Well, we just learned that. So we're good there. A little bit about the people over in this congregation. It says, Shaul, Shaul had not yet been to Rome. He finally arrived there three years after he wrote this letter. Are you kidding me? <laughs> He's talking to people that he hasn't even seen face to face yet. It's like, I hear there are some Lapidim over in Rome. And um, that's kind of a crazy area because how many gods do they serve? They come up with the whole mythological, mythological gods. Like they're called Roman and Greek gods. Like, and you're deciding to cut away from that and believe in Hashem? Are you serious? Let me write you something. Like, I'm proud of you guys. So then um, there's all that. So he gets there three years later. It says the nucleus of this congregation in Rome was probably formed by Jews from Rome who had been in Yerushalayim in Acts chapter 2, which is the day of Shavuot. Hang on, I need to go throw some stuff. Okay, so the fact that there are Lapidim over in Rome is because of this little known event that happens in Acts chapter 2 where we go back to what happened at Mount Sinai and people who were Jewish literally got converted again because the covenant had to be renewed and then they were from all over the place and then after that event everybody went back home sharing literally the good news that occurred and it's just like yeah so because of that there's a congregation over in Rome and they were brought this Torah and they were brought Judaism from people who were at Shavuot in Yerushalayim, which happened in Acts chapter 2. Okay. Okay, that's what we're going to do, huh? That's, that's how we're going to do it. Well, beautiful thing you need to know about commentary from today's Aliyah from Rabbi Griffin is that Shavuot is connected to Pesach. So if you have Pesach and you don't have Shavuot, you're not redeemed. 
If you have Shavuot and you don't have Pesach, you're not redeemed. Because you don't get to Shavuot unless you've experienced Pesach. And if you've experienced Pesach, you're not done until you get to Shavuot. And so Rabbi Griffin just kind of made that all shot by saying, so redemption and Torah go hand in hand. Redemption leads to Torah, not Torah leading to redemption or Torah without redemption. You can't do any of that. You got to be redeemed first. You got to be born again. Got to be free from slavery, bondage, sin and death. You got to be mikvah, which makes you the born again part. And then you go to the mountain and receive the Torah so that you can walk out that born againness. So that's what the people in Rome are doing. So it's funny because outside of the believers in Rome, um, there's a rap artist named Lecrae. And he's like, when in Rome, do what the Romans do. But I find when I do that, I die like in Romans, too. And it's just kind of like, hmm. It's a lot of death in Rome outside of Torah observance. Anyway, so what's the last thing I want to share? How about this? It says Paul's main point. So Shaul's main point in Romans. Hope you're sitting down for this because I won't stand for it. And it says his main point is that an individual's justification before Hashem, an individual justification before Hashem, i.e. he's set right, he's born again, Slika. he's a new creation, okay? It rests fundamentally on the mercy of Messiah Yeshua and not on the law of Moses. Now, that could sound very, very crazy because it's just like, okay, so then you're saying that it's the mercy of Messiah but not the law of Messiah. Because remember, the law of Moses is the law of Messiah. The Torah is Yeshua and Yeshua is the Torah. So how can you be based off the mercy of Torah, but then not based on the law of Torah? Hang on to that. Finish this. It says it is not a matter of law at all because no person can ever fully live up to God's law, which is an expression of God's holiness. Hold on to that. It's getting very, very ugly right now. It says, we are justified solely because Mashiach, out of the profound goodness of his heart, forgives people's sins. Isn't that special? Hang on to that too. Okay, there's a lot of stuff in your hand, I'm aware. Just don't drop the eggs. In the final analysis, a person's standing before God depends not on what the person has done or can do, Rather, it is based completely on what Mashiach has done for him or her and each person's acceptance of his gift of salvation by grace. So it's like, okay, it's not based on the Torah, but, you know, when you're forgiven and then you're given the Torah, which is salvation through grace, then it's like, now you got to accept that. But don't worry, it's not based on that. It's not based on what you have to accept. I know, still very, very ugly. Last statement. And therefore... Mashiach is entitled to the absolute and wholehearted allegiance, loyalty, devotion, and obedience of every human being. All right. End of the crazy Christian commentary on that. So, again, we said the main point is justification um, before Hashem, and that justification comes from our imuna. Now, let's break this down. So our justification rests fundamentally on the mercies of Messiah. So if Messiah is extending us mercies, how does that happen? 
That only happens because Hashem has granted us mercy. So what was the mercy of Hashem that he showed to people who were not in relationship with him, not in covenant with him, who were idolaters, who were goyim, pagans, non-Jews, okay? Because if you're a Jew, you're a part of covenant, okay? So that's what a real Jew is, you're a covenant, and that means you've left out of idolatry, you follow Hashem, you're filled with the Spirit, you're immersed, you're made new, all that. So in order for you to receive that mercy, what do you do? What do you do to receive mercy? What did the children of Israel do to receive Hashem's mercy? First of all, they started with accepting his word. Okay, so Moshe, the Redeemer, he comes, he goes before Parel, he tells the children of Israel what they need to do and all that, and they need to actually leave, get out of the place that is confining them. And it's like, okay, cool, yeah, we'll do that. What else do we need to do? What else do we need to do? Okay, we're walking with Hashem. You know, so that's where the mercy comes from. So that's your imuna. Because what does imuna mean? Imuna means faithful, uh, faithful obedience to the word of Hashem. So when Hashem requests something of us, we do it. Okay, and we believe in it. So our belief is based off of what we do. And that's what the word imuna means. So then it says, so that's where your mercy comes in. Your mercy comes in through your imuna. Now, and it says, and not on the law of Moses. So once you are a person of Amuna, you're walking in the law of Moses. Okay, you're studying, you're learning. Go back to Acts chapter 15. People are going to be coming to Shul every Shabbat and learning Moshe. So therefore, this next statement that it says, no person can ever fully live up to God's law. Okay, so how much of the Shul Konaruk are we actually fulfilling? How much of the Talmud are we actually fulfilling? So on and so forth, right? That's not the point. The point is, is that we're studying it, we're growing in it, and we're going to be continually learning in it. So every time we go through the cycles of Torah, we read most of Ramban that year. We're going to learn some more Ramban, and we did not finish all of our commentary. We did not finish all of the drash. We did not finish all of the Torah portion articles that week. Okay, so saying that we can't fully live up to God's law, that, that doesn't mean we don't do it and we can't do it. It's just there's so much there that how can we actually get through it all? I mean, if you really try to look at what is the Torah of Hashem, how much of it can we actually fulfill right now even? You know, because most of it says that, you know, we're supposed to go to the temple. We're supposed to be offering two lambs a day. You know, we're supposed to be, you know, doing all these things to make Aliyah to the temple mount and all that kind of stuff. Well, we don't have a temple. So how can we do it? But if you study like you're supposed to do, you begin to feel fulfill the Torah from the fact that you're studying. Because Judaism teaches us that we fulfill all the Torah when we study the Torah. Okay. When you are observing the Shabbat, if you keep the Shabbat, okay, if you enter into Shabbat, you've just fulfilled all the Torah. See, that's what that's what's not taught is that, yes, there are so many mitzvot. Yes, there's so much commentary. Yes, there is so much Jewish literature and you're not going to be able to get through it all. But guess what? If you keep the Shabbat, it's considered as if you've done it. And furthermore, when you are dealing with sacrifices that we're supposed to be making on a daily basis that we can't make, well, did you know that the words that you speak in prayer and praise to Hashem are called sacrifices? Something along the effects of let our lips replace the blood of bulls. 
something like that, you know, I don't know, just, you know, just a little Hosea, little drop there. But anyway, we do make sacrifices. And by the way, if you have a Siddur, if you read your Siddur, it tells you that if you read the sacrificial services for the afternoon and for the morning time, it's considered as if you fulfill the temple service for that day. So then it's just like, yeah, we don't have a temple. We can't make sacrifices. But if you read the Siddur and do the prayer services, you've just fulfilled it. So now you fulfill something that you, quote unquote, can't do. So what is this? It's just kind of like a semantical little phrase here that says, oh, you can't live up to God's law. Yeah. So you just need to focus on believing in Hashem and be all good. It's like. Yeah, believing in Hashem means doing what Hashem has given us to do. And it just so happens some of the things that he's given us to do cause us to fulfill all of the law. And I know rebuttals is if you break one Torah commandment, it's like you've broken the whole Torah. So then what do you do with that? And it's like, well, did you ever hear this concept called Teshuvah? Because by the way, if you make Teshuvah, it's considered as if you fulfill the entire Torah as well. And your previous error and misdeed in your Torah breaking now becomes merit. So it's as if you fulfilled what you actually did not fulfill retroactively on top of you now fulfilling the whole Torah. This is why Judaism is so important. This is why understanding the context and the foundation of what Hashem has already given us through Moshe, through the prophets, and through the writings of David. I'm talking about the Tehillim. So Messiah says, if you want to seek me, you can find me in the Torah, in the prophets, and in the Tehillim. So, there you go. So, anyway, Baruch Hashem, that's the introduction to the series that we will be with the Ebbet Hashem doing that corresponds to the Torah portions with the Egedet to the Lapidim in Rome. So, Todah Rabbah, again, it is Rosh Hodesh, so I pray everyone is having a beautiful celebration um, men, cook for your wives. Thank you, Hashem, that I got the opportunity to do that, kind of, mostly, um, hopefully, successfully, as I silently look for affirmation. Okay, Baruch Hashem. And, uh, you know, so enjoy the day. And Rosh Hodesh is a part of Parashat Bo. So when you get to that part of the Torah portion, eat it up and get you some. So, Tadarabah, many blessings to you, and Shavuot Tov, Bezrat Hashem, we'll see you again with Ner Yarok as we begin to dive into the actual writings of the first chapter. And Baruch Hashem, so Shalom.